thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. There's nothing like taking a long view of things to bring a new perspective. Take the way people move around the planet. Things have changed a great deal but the human impulse to up sticks and move seems to be as old as the hills they move across. Here's Richard Mortimer of the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge University speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Black Holes, The Inside Story. Modern humans originated in Africa and left Africa about 50,000 years ago. And at that point, they met other human species, the Neanderthals, who had left several hundred thousand years ago. And then within Europe, initially there were hunter-gatherer peoples who did the cave paintings that one finds in, in France and Spain. And, uh, and then uh, after the Ice Age, the farmers came in and moved across Europe from um, Turkey, we believe now. And then there was a later movement of peoples bringing uh, iron-working or metal-working technologies from Russia. So all of these things have left genetic traces. The movement of peoples is our subject this week. Sometimes it's necessary for survival, sometimes it's a born of the wish to trade or simply out of curiosity, and sometimes it's a sort of self-glorifying quest or demonstration of power. But it is deeply ingrained in the human behaviour. With me to discuss movement on the grand scale are Dr. Pierre Schouten and Dunja Habash. Pierre is a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies and joins us from Copenhagen. He's presently examining the role of infrastructure in fragile settings, including in the Congo, Central African Republic and South Sudan. Dunya is a PhD scholar and outreach officer here at the Wolf Institute. She is researching continuing Syrian musical traditions amongst exiles from that benighted country, especially in Turkey, but is speaking us today from Alabama. Well, welcome both. I know that neither of you are pre-historians, but I'd appreciate your observations about the early movement of peoples, as we heard a few moments ago. That one's for you, Pierre. Yes, so migration and mass movement, they are deeply ingrained in, in human life and human history as, as we can possibly fathom. It certainly makes sense to see the very kind of basic drives, the search for resources, food resources and safety as key drivers of movement and, uh, and migration across the planet. Uh, but I'd certainly like to also add freedom to that equation. Uh, we know, for instance, from equatorial Africa and the forested regions of Latin America, that much population movement was driven by increasing, increasing population densities. As soon as uh, any given uh, group got too big to sustain themselves through foraging, 
uh, extensive farming and hunting, affection would simply split off and continue elsewhere. But there's actually pretty solid archaeological evidence that much of human migration was also driven by the innate desire to escape aspiring overlords. Wherever people congregate, some people will be more equal than others. And throughout most of human history, the time-tested strategy has been to simply pick up and leave. So, so it is as it was. Dunya, that still seems to be the case today, doesn't it? Yes. I can't really comment on prehistory, but I can say, because I am studying the now and forced migration in the contemporary world, especially looking at Syrian migration out of Syria after the war, or even before, I mean, my own personal family history is clear evidence of this idea that, you know, movement is constant. And, you know, my parents left Syria in the late 1980s, specifically for many of the reasons that you just mentioned, Pierre the search for freedom, the search for security, economic stability. So they left and went to America and never moved back, basically. And so now I'm seeing the same things happening, of course, on a more um, heightened level because of the civil war and all of the danger that that has created in, in that region. So, you know, we have half of Syria's population now has left the region as a result, nearly 8 million people. So, of course, this is a continued story. Dunya, your story isn't one, I think, of escape from civil war, like so many Syrians, the 8 million that you've mentioned. It was more in line, was it, with what Pierre was saying, which was looking for a new life for other reasons. Is that right? Yeah, because I was born in America, but I've always wondered why my dad felt the need to leave Syria so strongly. So he left under the Assad regime. So he was uh, born right before Assad came to power in 1970. And I guess, you know, his explanation is that he just felt that he couldn't really seek the education that he wanted in Syria. So he was a bit more ambitious than what the country could offer to him. And America at the time was this beacon of hope and liberation. So he just had this dream as a child that he wanted to get there somehow. And he did that through education. So he became a physician and he studied at the University of Damascus. And then as soon as he could, left, you know, and came to America, continued his residency and and just stayed. He was so enamored by kind of this idea of liberty and freedom and the fact that he could read whatever he wanted without being worried about the state coming in and threatening his family. He told me one time he had to bury his his books in the front yard, actually, because, you know, he was reading materials that were deemed illegal in Syria at the time, or that threatened the power of the secular pan-Arab state that Assad was trying to create at the time. So, I mean, I think, yeah, that's a a very clear, just, you know, personal story of my own family and, and how they left, you know, in search of more liberty. And Pia, your area, of course, is is Africa and particularly the central parts of Africa. And often when we think about the movement of peoples in Africa, we do think about crisis, war, famine. But presumably your experience also is people are moving for to just improve their lives rather than simply to escape where they were. Yes, I think it's it's a really good point that you make there. Uh, I think in order to appreciate the key importance of movement and mobility for uh, Africans, one would have to appreciate that most livelihoods across the African continent, and particularly in Central Africa, where where I look at, 
are still based on the primary sector. Uh, well, what does it mean if we say primary sector? It means people farm, fish, uh, mine, herd cattle. And it means that any kind of exchange or uh, capitalization of that activity uh, requires people taking their things to markets. Um, and this means that uh, the African continent, and particularly Central Africa, uh, is just bustling with movement all of, of the time. And this being the case, uh, movement is, of course, central to people's worldview and view of themselves. Nomad cattle herders, for instance, uh, so-called pastoralists, they have developed a whole cosmology around perpetual mass movement. It's hardwired in their worldview, as well as in their conception of what constitutes meaningful living, uh, also in relation to the gods. Long-distance trade in Africa, today as before, involves all kinds of real-world dangers, but also involves negotiating the unseen. Mobile people from artisanal miners to truckers and hawkers equip themselves with protective charms and are as much concerned about the spirits uh, one has to accommodate along the way as they are about the many soldiers and rebels they might face. Messianistic movements often arise when people face collective disaster and have to move. Truckers, they pay priests for their trucks to get blessed. Uh, peddlers visit the shrine and make a sacrifice bef before embarking on a trip. And cross-border mineral smugglers carry potent amulets. Most trucks, actually, and motorcycles are painted with biblical or Quranic quotes so that Allah, Jesus, and all sorts of other spiritual forces travel along these roads as well. Is that also true of Turkey, Dunya, your time there, in terms of the movement of peoples and, and the sort of cosmic significance given to that movement? So I'm working with mainly like Syrian refugees and artists in exile at the moment. And actually what I've been discovering is that I'm now kind of shifting my focus a little bit because initially I thought that Turkey would have some kind of like significance in the Syrian psyche because of the shared Ottoman past and, you know, the shared faith, right? Turkey is also Sunni majority Muslim country. Syria is also Sunni majority Muslim country. So, you know, I had this idea that the cultural affinity between the two nations would kind of encourage people to feel more settled. But I'm discovering that actually the main driving force, and this is not shocking, I don't think, but the main driving force for the three million plus Syrians who have moved to Turkey since the civil war started is mainly economic factors. And it was simply just, we need to find a new living in a place where, as you said, Pierre, it is safe for us to go to work and to go to the market and to open up our businesses and to invest in things that we know will thrive and continue. So that even for artists and musicians, you know, in war, the first thing that goes is the leisure activities. So music became near minimal or opportunities to perform music and to make a living off of it in Syria drastically went underway as the war unfolded. So many musicians and artists left and thought that Turkey would be a nice alternative to find work again as musicians. And of course, you know, there's a lot of other new economic struggles in Turkey, which I'm examining for my research. So yeah, most of the people I have spoken with and interviewed hardly ever mentioned that, oh yeah, I came to Turkey because of all of this significance and meaning and cultural affinity i actually came here simply because i needed money right and i needed a way to finance my living and my family's living pia your book roadblock is all about movement or the constraint of movements tell us a little bit about it the main 
message that I tried to convey in this book has to do with how we think about states and political power and political order. Uh, most of our theories of the state focus on control over territory and people. From this perspective, of course, most African states are very easily framed as failing. Uh, so the point of my book would be to challenge this by giving movement its rightful place in how we understand conflicts and state formation in Central Africa. Given that most people here depend for their subsistence on putting surplus production into circulation, everyone's always on the move. As roads are then bustling with people and valuable goods, it is also here that aspiring rulers can most easily gain power, financial or political, from the capacity to inhibit movement. The thousands of roadblocks that I met in the region, nimble and portable apparatuses of imposition, are but a window into a much bigger point. Uh, what I found is that pre-colonial chieftains, colonial rulers and contemporary rebels all focus their efforts disproportionately on controlling roads instead of territories, minerals or concentrations of people. And this holds not only for Congo and the Central African Republic, but spreads as far as the unpaved trade routes that crisscross the continent. At the same time, the book is also a window into the politics of global trade, because many of these trade routes uh, are the conduits along which global supply chains crisscross the continent. And uh, beer companies such as Heineken, uh, logistical subcontractors to the UN, all participate in a political economy of conflict in which rebels are able to subtract wealth from these global trade flows. Dunya, are there any echoes, particularly the trade routes, and you think about Turkey and the, sort of the history of the Ottomans and so on? Yeah, um, that's very interesting. I've been kind of interested in political economy recently, just especially the more I learn about kind of how the Syrian civil war unfolded, many different factions that broke up from the Free Syrian Army and, and how they were doing exactly what you were saying, Pierre, in, in terms of roadblocks coming up all over Syria and all of it was a way of making money basically off of the war. At one point, my uncles in Damascus said that it became very difficult to just go from neighborhood to neighborhood because there was a roadblock in basically every neighborhood and you either had to pay a fine or deal with the police or deal with whatever group or faction was in charge of that area over time. So of course that killed the Syrian economy and it's it's still causing lots of economic effects, basically, especially moving from city to cities. I mean, trade became very hard and business became very hard to do. And still, the Syrian economy is still struggling a lot to kind of revive itself because of all of these issues. So it's interesting because I've been uh, talking with fellow researchers who've been looking at other conflict situations uh, as well. And even in places where there's not a, a such a acute civil war such as Syria, and they tell me the same story, that actually in many places around the world, uh, perhaps since the 90s, control over trade routes, which used to be lodged in states and state infrastructural power, has uh, become contested again and subject to all kinds of different authorities who may claim to, uh, to the power over passage. And it seems that perhaps in hindsight, the era in which states held a monopoly control over transport and trade has but been a, a short-lived exception to the to the longer standing historical rule of uh, the highway as being a space of danger and contestation of sovereign power. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Pierre Schouten and Dunya Khabash, and we're discussing what we've rather portentously called the movement of peoples. 
Large-scale migration is often associated with war and conflict, and we found an interesting article about this subject by the social scientist Mariana Marasu on the Naked Scientist website. She studied a digital index of the books and articles published in the 19th and 20th centuries and found that regardless of their subject matter, the writings reflected troubled or peaceful times. A basic validation can come from just looking at these charts, where we can observe a decrease in life satisfaction during the war periods, such as World War I and World War II or the Civil War in the US. This suggests that the mood of the books during those periods was more sombre, potentially fitting in with the general mood of the population as well. Dunya, I remember reading one of your blogs. I think what you touched on, if I remember rightly, was it's not just a matter of individual goodwill and, and the sort of local NGOs, whether they're faith organisations or whatever, helping, but it's actually we have to shift the, the kind of political economy. Does that ring a bell? So a lot of people ask me when they find out that I'm studying forced migration or the Syrian refugee crisis in particular, like, what's your solution to the issue? Or, you know, do you have any idea how we can solve the crisis or, or fix, you know, the, this refugee issue basically and you know my answer has always been well I think the problem with kind of the humanitarian world or the development sector is that we're always focusing on curing the symptoms rather than getting to the heart of the issue which is why are people leaving in masses from countries like Syria or other refugee producing countries why don't we kind of zero in on the factors that are pushing people out of these countries rather than focusing on the pull factor in in the kind of uh, international development world there's this idea of push and pull factors right so the pull is what attracts people to another country and the push is what pushes them out that's kind of always been my response to that which is okay why has syrian society completely disintegrated to the point that its economy has become nothing i mean right now the syrian lira is almost three thousand liras to the dollar uh which before the war it was 50 liras to the dollar i mean so that is just ridiculous inflation and there's just no way you can survive in a society like that so why wouldn't you leave i mean there why would you stay it's a mess, basically, and the politics is always a mess. But I, I just think that if we focus on kind of the causes of mass migration rather than curing the symptoms, such as showing up to help refugees, you know, on the shores of Greece, wonderful ethos and everything. But I mean, that's really not doing anything to kind of solve the real crisis, in my opinion. Yes, I think it's interesting points you make there, there Dunya. And, and I agree with much of what you say. I also believe that much of humanitarianism and, and even development work is a patch over much more serious and deep-rooted uh, issues and causes that, that one would need to address. I think there's, there's two things I would like to say about that. On the one hand, if we take a kind of global perspective, I mean, mass migration out of Africa is one of the biggest concerns for many uh, European governments because that's a concern that they have elevated to a key pitch among their constituencies. And they try to make themselves popular by taking an aggressive approach towards migration from from Syria, Afghanistan, and other conflict zones in the Middle East, but also, and increasingly so, from Africa. Now, if you look at the kind of sources of mass migration out of Africa, 
there's increasing warning signs, and some people have said the same about Syria, that changes in the availability of natural resources, small variations in rainfall and in, the, in temperatures are leading to uh, increasingly chaotic and unpredictable conditions for farmers and, and, and herders. I think that these kind of changes in the near future, environmental change and environmental collapse eventually, are just in their, in their infancy, really. So, so, so mass migration is, is not only here to stay, but giving a collective lack of action on, on climate change also something very likely to take on a much more uh, drastic form in the near future. From a kind of more sinister perspective, humanity has proven very inventive in facilitating or blocking mass movement through mass violence, something that is ongoing in parts of the world and can flare up in more serious ways. And another thing which is interesting about mass movement in relation to humanitarian aid and development workers is that, you know, some people make the critique that humanitarian workers uh, are such a big population, expat workers roving uh, the global south, they go as far as to say that it's a form of imperialism, of Western uh, liberal agendas trying to control politics in the global south through technical kind of programming. I wouldn't go so far, but I would think it would be interesting to point out that these are often very highly educated and progressive uh, liberal or leftist young people who now put their youthful energies to work on faraway problems. Now, if you go back like maybe 200 years, many Western governments used their colonies to, to ship off radical and unwanted groups in society. I would be curious whether, whether governments in the global north do not in some way benefit from shipping off this kind of politically active demographic of young and enthusiastic uh, liberals to remote crisis. Just imagine if this demographic would put unleash their energy on political activism in their own societies. Of course, 200 years ago, Piers, it was the churches that sent its bright young things to the heart of Africa to preach the gospel, right? So maybe that's just part of the makeup of the global north. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was not without consequences. Uh, I think that... Uh, perhaps unbeknownst to colonial regimes at the time, the availability of the Christian doctrine in Central Africa, for instance, led to the emergence of all kinds of anti-colonial messianistic movements, which took the Bible and the word of God and saw in it their own messages, which they then used to propagate an alternative vision of freedom and emancipation from that very purpose for which these churches were brought in in the first place. I mean, some people have called for a Marshall Plan for Africa. The Marshall Plan was an American massive investment to rebuild those countries which had been destroyed during the Second World War. I mean, are we talking that we have to have a real global strategy to respond to Dunya's analysis? Or are we better actually doing more regional work? I know Prince Hassan of Jordan is very keen to create a kind of Israel-Palestine-Jordan nexus in terms of people, economy, tourism, and so on. Is it either or, both and? Can you help us there? Let's start with you, Dunya. This is a very interesting question. And I'm not sure how this Marshall Plan would look in practice, but I think something of the sort in the abstract is necessary. Even just rebuilding infrastructure in in this region of the world, if they have a means of having a livelihood, no one would, you know, be attracted to these pull factors outside of their place of belonging as they see it, right? So I've always advocated for this, you know, and thought that 
at the end of the day, that's really what people care about. They just want safety and security and, you know, they can make their own livelihoods and, you know, protect their families and raise their families. I'm looking at the Middle East, so I, I cannot really comment on, on Africa. That's, there are different regions. But in the Middle East in particular, I say it needs infrastructure. It is definitely behind the liberal global north in terms of technology, services, industry. And I think something like a Marshall Plan would boost the economies over there. Think about the Gulf states. You know, They had the money to invest in their infrastructure, and now they're attracting people to that region of the world. If we shift the perspective to Africa, I think that infrastructure is basically most noticeable for its absence in many regions of Africa. And it's often pointed out by regional development banks, uh, national governments, and indeed donors, that infrastructure is one of the key priorities that they can all agree on. If they don't agree so much on human rights, governance, and other kinds of issues, uh, infrastructure is is a kind of the lowest common denominator and definitely would make a huge change for government reach, service delivery, economic activity. But uh, as always, I'm not sure, though, if the metaphor applies to something as vast and grand as a Marshall Plan, but the devil's in the details. There's been many efforts to try and provide, for instance, countries like Congo with infrastructure networks. Uh, But the moment the donors pull out, maintenance is, is basically absent or very difficult given the kind of tropical conditions in place, not fungible given the economic activities that would actually take place over these infrastructure networks so that roads uh, often end up disappearing again uh, within a fairly short time frame. Now, what I think is important is that any kind of grand vision or scheme for Africa on par with, with the Marshall Plan would address questions like debt relief and uh, perhaps more, more importantly, unequal trade relations. It's still so, like it was uh, in the 60s and 70s, that there's all kinds of trade barriers in Europe which uh, inhibit African producers of, for instance, coffee from uh, selling the uh, produced and uh, and processed uh, product. And uh, they're only allowed to export uh, their kind of raw materials, whereas all the profit is often accrued in the processing and marketing of these, these products. So very simple, banal, quite boring policy options are the most important ones, but those are also the most difficult ones to actually get through for some reason or other. So I think before we start thinking about grant schemes and interventions, let's try and pull away the the barriers that inhibit endogenous growth, which would definitely take up once these conditions would be in place. And are there any models of excellence that either of you can share with us? Examples of success dealing with both the push and the pull factors? Yeah, I mean, individual Syrians I have met over the past few years uh, doing this research, you know, it's something that has struck me is the resilience of many of these refugees and, and how many of them have left their families, have become completely separate from families, and they still manage to learn new languages, educate themselves in their new societies. Many of them went on excruciating journeys to get to the global north. And I just can't imagine even just dealing with the trauma of such a trip and then dealing with starting from scratch once you do finally get to, you know, your new host society and trying to integrate yourself. I mean, it's it's really hard work. And seeing many of these young Syrians in particular kind of thrive in their new 
places, their new homes is, is really extraordinary. And to me, kind of a beacon of hope for all of the trauma and ugliness that we do see with things like mass migration and forced migration. So I try to remind myself of these individual stories whenever I, you know, think very dark thoughts about kind of Syria and the trauma that Syria has been through in the, in the last 10 years uh, in particular. Yes, I would uh, maybe return to, to where we start out. As I mentioned, uh, Africa is literally bustling with movement. And it's not only the farmers that carry their products to local markets or the hawkers that peddle Chinese goods across uh, immense distances, but all of these people who are moving around, African peacekeepers, uh, aid workers from one African country and another, traders and migrant workers who ply between urban hubs, popular artists who, who shuttle between music stages, uh, preachers hopping from church to church across the continent. These are all fostering a vibrant cross-continental exchange. And we see uh, increasingly Africans engaging in really creative solutions and being uh, much more confident on their role on the world stage. And uh, luckily, uh, also among academics, there's an increasing awareness that we have to put the partners that we work with, that we've used as local researchers or fixers even, give them center stage and let them uh, help determine the research agenda, uh, let their interests uh, guide uh, what we are doing so that the kind of movement and exchange of information, ideas, interests, and also cash come to benefit the people who, who are their most needed. Resilience, movement, ideas, cash. Well, there we must end it. Thanks to my well-travelled guests, Pierre Schouten and Dunya Khabash. We'd love to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what you think of the podcast, and you can catch up on our back catalogue without moving from your armchair. There are episodes on conflict resolution, grief, the American election, and many, many others. You can find and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.